I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everybody has got a philosophy of life. The vast majority of people don't know they have because they acquired it unconsciously from their parents, society, schools, um, church, wherever it came from, and they live according to it. And if there is a, a widespread sense of discomfort, like you've got the wrong size shoe on, it's because you're living in the wrong size philosophy of life for you because you've just unconsciously taken it. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. In this episode, I talk to one of the most eminent philosophers of our era, A.C. Grayling. He's a lifelong philosophy academic and he's written close to 40 books on big issues, perhaps the most well-known of which is The God Argument. He's also founded his own philosophical school, is a judge on the Booker Prize, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, the Royal Society of Literature, and the World Economic Forum. And he's been a global voice in debates on euthanasia, war crimes, whether God can exist in an evil world, and Brexit. And I should say he's an ardent Remainer. His latest book is called For the Good of the World. And in it, he wrestles with whether global agreement on the global challenges that we face is in fact possible. Now, in our chat, AC or Anthony and I reason our way through his thesis on global agreement. But because it's such a huge honour to spend close on an hour in person with one of the best thinkers in the world, I steer our chat to thinking, the joy of it, the, the responsibility we all have to do more of it. And besides that thesis of his on global agreement, he actually reasons that it's only possible, that is global agreement, if and when we all engage in a lot more considered altruistic thinking. So yeah. For anyone who feels the lonely fallout of a culture that has turned wholly intellectual in the past few decades, this is a chat that should make you smile and feel just a bit warm. Anthony winds up sharing the most wonderful insight into the importance and the nuts and bolts of wrestling your way to your own life philosophy, which he says is the whole point of our existence and I think is the best pathway to our own wildness. Anthony loves thinking and is notoriously generous in interviews and beyond. He's 73 now and he travels the world to share his joy of the sport and shares recommendations to great texts and quotes and wisdoms. This chat actually came off the back of our time together at the Byron Writers' Festival where we had 
quite a number of conversations over drinks and dinners, a bus ride to the airport and uh, a pretty grim time sitting at Gold Coast Airport under fluorescent lights, um, in which we chat love and boredom, the hard problem of consciousness, living in Paris, opera dates and more. Some of the musings around which we flesh out in our conversation now. Thank you so much for joining me here. It's a real honour to finally meet you after reading your books and following your work for so many years. I really appreciate it. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. So I've heard you refer to something that the Greek philosopher Plutarch said about being a guest at a dinner party and how there's a responsibility on the guest to provide good conversation, which entails, I believe, a love of thinking and a curiosity of following an argument, inquiring and listening and so on. And I feel that from what I understand, that quote has very much informed your love of philosophy. Can you perhaps share with us when you first got interested in philosophy and responsibility as a good conversationalist? Well, let me say something about the good conversationalist first, because yes, it's please. a really, really interesting point. You know, Plutarch's talking about a, a dinner at which the, the seven sages of Greece were present. And in fact, it starts with two of them on the way to the dinner party. And one says to the other, well, we know what the host must do. The host's duty is to provide food, wine, entertainment. But what is the guest's duty? And the other one says, well, the guest's duty is to be a good conversationalist. That's a really interesting concept. In the context of a dinner party, that means being well-informed, able to articulate your point of view, but also, very importantly, to be a really good listener, by which is meant someone who really hears what the other person is saying, doesn't just think he hears what the other say, and so therefore can engage with the other, draw the other person out, perhaps challenge them if necessary, but anyway, make real contact with them. So this idea of being well-informed and attentive and, you know, having thought about things, but on the other hand, also being very alert, very attentive to others and to the world. That is what makes one a good guest at the dinner of life. That's the point of, of that generalization of that quotation. So it makes you a good citizen, a good participant in humanity. Exactly, yes. And you know, in the ancient times, the, the Stoic philosophers uh, had this concept of the cosmopolitan, the cosmopolis, which is the great community of human beings, of people. And to be a cosmopolitan was to be a citizen of that much larger community. It's not just the nation state or your own city, but of, of the family of humanity. And to be a member of that is to be just such a person as Plutarch describes. It's a responsibility. It's a responsibility, it's a responsibility to be a listener and to be informed and engaged and curious and to think. Yes, mm. very much so. Yes, that is the responsibility. And the, w another reason why it's a responsibility is that we find ourselves, when we become aware of our own existence, you know, when we're about seven or ten or whatever that happens, and we find ourselves, among others, in a world which is very complex and very highly networked, and we're caught up in the nets of social relationships. And we begin to think about things and, and respond to things. But one of the things that we're aware of is that we have capacities, every one of us. We have talents, and we have this uh, tremendous evolutionary gift of intelligence. And not to use it, to be lazy, not to think, to accept what, what you know, authorities say or others say, is to betray yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is why it's a responsibility to be a thinker. 
I very much like that line of thinking, particularly currently. I think that there's a real deficit of thinking, but we'll we'll get to that in a moment. I'd love you, though, to perhaps explain how you first got interested in philosophy. I've heard your answer before, but I'd like everybody listening to how you first got engaged. It was a lucky accident in one respect that uh, I spent my childhood in Africa, in a part of Africa where there was no television where it was very difficult to get BBC on the radio, where you couldn't go for walks in the country because you get eaten by lions and leopards. And so wow, yes. And, and so we were thrown on our own resources. And the one that that most satisfied me was was reading. So I became a, a very avid uh, reader, a bit of a swat, I suppose, very early on. And we had a set of encyclopedia at home. And one of the things I came across, of course, were the portraits of and little accounts of the great philosophers. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And I really, really, really wanted to know more about them. I was so intrigued by what was said of their views. And so when I was about 12, I finally had an opportunity to get hold of uh, Plato's actual writings in the translation by Benjamin Jowett. The very first dialogue of his I read was called The Comedies. And it's a very early dialogue. It's very accessible. I mean, if a 12-year-old boy could understand it, then certainly everybody could. But I was bowled over by it because I thought to myself, if these great iconic figures of our culture can dedicate themselves to this, I'm going to do the same thing. That got me going. And I made a happy discovery quite soon after getting interested in philosophy, which is that philosophy is both an invitation and a license to stick your nose into everything, to become interested in everything, science and history and politics and society, as well as the deep philosophical debates about the nature of knowledge and reality and and the good. It's really interesting that you bring up the encyclopedia because, just as a slight aside, I grew up in the country where there were a poor Encyclopedia Britannica salesman showed up at our door. And of course, it was a kilometre drive up our driveway in the middle of nowhere. And he arrived. My parents had no intention of buying this encyclopedia set, but he left the P, you know, sort of book. And so we had this P edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica in our house. And this poor guy never came back to collect it. All of our assignments for about three years began, (laughs) were topics beginning with P. So (laughs) I spent a lot of time reading um, one edition of it or one, one chapter of it. So what is it about philosophy that brings you joy? Because it clearly does. The reason I ask the question is I really want people to hear that enthusiasm and to perhaps, you know, maybe encourage them to, to find joy in thinking. Everybody knows that the word philosophy literally means love of wisdom, but that the real meaning of it is inquiry, and it is is rational, unstoppable inquiry. So if you become interested in something or you hear something, find out about something, really to dig into it and to follow it up. And of course, the minute that you do that, when things start to open like blossoms, the way flowers open in the sun, you find that this world of ours, the history of this world, the history of humanity, the things that we think, the ideas, the the difficulties, the, everything about our world is just rich in fascinations. And so you become kind of addicted to, to the fact that there is so much to know, so much to explore, and uh, so, so, so many puzzles and, and interesting problems to try to wrestle with. Yeah, I think a lot of people, and look, I could be wrong here, but I've been trying to work this out for quite some time as to why people veer or shy away from particularly deep thinking. Of course, it's always difficult. 
you have to extend yourself to engage in in big topics and nuanced topics. But I also think that it's sort of, well, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? And I think that we've got a culture to ensure that we're comfortable. It sort of says that comfort is what we should be seeking rather than extending ourselves and being uncomfortable. And I suppose the joy, the flip side, the joy, the upside of thinking is not really shared that often. We don't hear people talking about their love of solving a difficult problem or whatever it might be. And I feel like something is really lost there. And that's why I asked that question. Do you observe a similar sort of thing? Oh, you're right about it. Yes. And there are a cluster of reasons why people shy away from thinking or exploring too deeply. This is because we're misled and it could be, you know, the fault of, of uh, educators, especially early, um, into thinking that there have to be right or wrong answers or relatively simple ones or ones that you can access quite quickly. And to live with uncertainty and doubt and, and you know, no resolution to a problem, to recognize that a problem can be an opportunity even if you don't solve it. You know, there's that wonderful remark by the French poet Paul Valéry where he says, a difficulty is a light, but an insurmountable difficulty is the sun. Because when you try to solve that problem, you learn so much more around it, you know. And so the the openness, the receptivity to that, the, the fact that you're prepared for doubt and for open-endedness and, and for not being able to resolve things right now, this minute, or maybe even ever, that after all is the characteristic of the scientific mind. Because science is all about doubt and uncertainty and open-endedness. And, you know, there's a natural human desire for closure. We love a story, beginning, middle, and an end, and we love to be able to understand something in less than 20 minutes, but anything that takes a bit longer. I mean, I rather, rather, you know, uh, mischievously point out to people that you can understand all the major tenets and doctrines of any major world religion in well less than half an hour. But it does take a bit more than that to understand physics. And this is why, you know, <laughs> people will go for the one rather than the other. It is that uncertainty, isn't it? And again, we live in a culture where we want definites because we don't like the discomfort of not knowing. And I often cite this statistic, 90% of technology that has been created in the last 30 years has been geared not at solving wonderful problems or exploring things further. It's been geared at eliminating as much discomfort as possible for the average human. And I think that's done a real disservice to the human endeavor broadly. Oh, you're dead right about it. Well, famously, of course, uh, Bertrand Russell said, most people would rather die than think, and most people do. And of course, this is, as you pointed out, one of my out, favorite quotes. One of the world's tragedies. And this is something that, uh, that Socrates himself, of course, had no noted, and indeed uh, wanted to demonstrate to people he challenged. He would go around saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? In fact, he would ask them, how should we live? What, what sort of people do you think we should be? What are the values that should shape and color our lives? And then people would say things. Marvelous example is the dialogue, the Menno where this young, handsome man comes to Athens on business. His name is Menno. And of course, in those days, there was no telly in the evenings. So <laughs> we would get under an olive tree and discuss the great problem of the day. And the great problem of the day was, can the upstanding citizens of the poli of Athens and Thebes and elsewhere pass on their sense of uprightness, of righteousness to their children? And the reason it was a big question was because those ancient Greek teenagers were all you know, drinking too much ouzo and staying out late at night and getting <laughs> pregnant and so on. <laughs> and so he really wanted to see whether it was possible to pass on a sense of virtue. The question was formulated as, can we teach virtue to the young? And so he said, uh, I don't know. And Menno was absolutely flabbergasted. He said, well, why don't you know? So he said, because I don't know the answer to a more fundamental question, which is what virtue is. 
And then I said, what? You, well, you're the great Socrates. How can you possibly not know what virtue is? So Socrates said, well, I don't, do you? And I said, of course I do. Socrates said, oh, thank God. I've been looking for somebody all my life. Who knows. What is it? And every effort that uh, Menno made to define it, Socrates demolished, okay, until... He was good at that, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was good. Menno said, eventually, Socrates, you're like a stingray. You've stung my lips and tongue, and I don't know what to say. And Socrates said, good. Now that you know you don't know what you're talking about, we can make progress. The idea that confusion is the beginning of wisdom. Now, that is such a valuable insight that people who are afraid of going further or finding out more because they think they don't understand or don't know enough, who confuse ignorance with stupidity. You know, there's that wonderful story about Dr. Johnson in the first edition of his dictionary. He defined the pastern of a horse as its knee. Now, perhaps we need to explain to people what a pastern is. If you if you visualize the back hindquarters of a horse, you know, it has a bend in the middle, doesn't it? Yes. What people don't realize is that the lower half of a horse's leg is actually a big toe, and the hoof is just a big toenail. Oh, my so goodness. So they've got little stubby legs and then long toes. That's what a horse's leg is made of. And the pastern, the, the bendy bit of the back leg of a horse, is actually its heel, not its knee. Johnson defined it as the knee of a horse. Paston is the knee of a horse. And this woman said to him, Dr. Johnson, how could you possibly define Paston as the knee of a horse? And he said, ignorance, madam, sheer ignorance. He was perfectly <laughs> happy with the fact that he just didn't know. And he was perfectly happy to confess that he didn't know. And if we were all like that, instead of trying to hide away or not get engaged in a conversation, just in case we get found out not knowing something. And the problem is people think not knowing is being stupid. And it isn't the same thing. Let's move to the topic of your current book, which you're in Australia to promote at the moment, For the Good of the World. And it really explores, I suppose, the big crises that face us. You primarily focus on the climate crisis, AI, and human rights, essentially, or injustices. And there's a bunch of issues that surround all of those. Your aim is almost to try to find a methodology or a theory for what could eventually lead to global, some kind of global agreement. And you've got a, a particular sort of thesis that has a logic to it. But one of the big impediments that you talk about is what's called Grayling's Law. And I do not know why you would want to put your name to this particular law because it is so grim. But could you talk us through Grayling's Law? The book does address these big uh, issues, and the question that is attempted to be answered, I'm putting it in the passive mood there, uh, in the book is, is it possible that the world, I mean, all the governments, all the people of the world, could agree on how to deal with these problems, how to confront them, given that they are problems that can only be solved by international agreement. So that, that is the problematic of the book in a way. So I point out that the reason why uh, we don't get international agreement already on how to deal with the climate challenge and, and all these different technologies, most of which are very good and positive, but some of which are potentially very dangerous, and also this great deficit of justice and, and human rights in the world, the deficit of a voice that people have in the world. The reason why they're not addressed is because of this law, Grayling's law. And the law has two aspects to it. The first says, anything that can be done will be done if it can be made to happen by people who will profit from it. So for example, gene editing is of fetuses is now perfectly technically feasible. So you can edit a fetus's genes to make it taller, more intelligent, run faster, etc. And of course, this is wonderful from the point of view of getting rid of so inherited disease, done. but it could be done to make a sort of super race. 
Perhaps not enough people these days read Aldous Huxley's book, Brave New World, but that is a book which is about humanity turning into two species, the sort of upper species and then the the drones, the workers. You could imagine how gene editing could produce for people who are rich enough to get it done and get access to that medical technology, a race of human beings who are far superior in intelligence and looks and everything to the mass of other people. So, well, okay, do we want that to happen or not? The point is, it's never really been discussed. My argument but in the book is we need, it's already happening, yeah. So that, that, that's one example. Anything that can be done will be done. Now, if you try to outlaw that, it still will be done by bad people or very rich people or the people who can make it happen, okay? So that's the problem with that aspect of the law. The other aspect is things that can be done, like trying to do something about the climate or, or you know, trying to diminish the conflicts in the world, things that can be done will not be done if doing them brings a cost or a disadvantage to whoever can stop them happening. So there the classic example is Trump. Trump, when he was elected as president, uh, said that he was going to uh, take the United States out of the Paris agreements on climate change. Why? Because he was supported by the coal mining industry and he wanted to mine coal. In fact, he even held up a sign at his election rally saying Trump digs coal. So there is somebody who could stop something because it brought him uh, a disadvantage to see it happen. And yet it is something that could happen, if you see what I mean, if we were willing to make it happen. That's right. It's a truism, really. But you set it up as an inevitability, which is the real blockage to us getting global agreement. But what you do at the end in a chapter called The Solution, try to outline is really what is the only option for us. And that is to be able to move beyond Grayling's Law or the impediment that it presents. People and government institutions need to act selflessly and in a united way and share both the advantages and costs of of what can be done. It essentially involves governments being no longer short-termist and not political. And for the rest of us to be informed, altruistic, good conversationalists at the, the global dinner party and so on, and engaging, I suppose, in what really is ideal democracy at the end of the day. You do say that you think it's highly unlikely that we're going to be able to pull this off. And so you say the alternative, I think it's in the final paragraph, the alternative, the plan B, is essentially activism or activists going, all right, if you're not going to do it, if you're not going to pull off good democracy, we're going to have to step in, which I, I find an interesting conclusion for your final paragraph. I'm sure it's going to lead to something else or an extra book in this in this realm. But I was going to present you with an ethical quandary, which I've been discussing with some friends the last couple of days. You may have seen it in the papers. The Guardian reported on these activists over in New York who are fed up with um, rich people buying SUVs. And I was really surprised to hear that they are the second largest cause of the global rise in carbon dioxide emissions over the past decade, SUVs. Um, and that's after power, right? So that is massive. So these activists are taking things into their own hands and wait for it. They're getting brown lentils and placing them in the valves of the tyre, which slowly takes the pressure out of the tyre, right? So they deflate slowly. So it's they're not slashing tires, they're deflating them slowly. And it's caused this big controversy. And they leave a little note on the windscreen saying, it's not you, it's your car. And we know this is going to make you angry, but the damage to you is nothing compared with the damage. You know, I talked about it with a couple of friends and their immediate reaction, that's wrong. 
It's wrong to interfere with somebody's property. I personally was like, wow, that is ingenious. And it's sort of what you actually, you referred to a couple of examples in your book where we come up with solutions slightly to the left of, of the situation. What's your ethical take on what these activists are doing? Well, I have the hugest admiration for those activists. And I'm a big, uh, big fan, in fact, of Extinction Rebellion, which I know annoys a lot of people because they disrupt all the traffic. And on one or two occasions, they've even stopped ambulances and things, which perhaps wasn't quite wise, but they modified their technique now. I'm a big uh, admirer of theirs because I think they're mainly young people, but they're people who are very, very, very concerned. They have a, a sense of the real urgency of the emergency, which we're confronted with. Most people who know something about the climate problem and who know that there's a you know, big risk uh, just ahead of us and who now, of course, are confronted with all these extreme weather events we've seen around the world, they tend to kind of glaze over or revert their eyes because it's just it's so hard persistently being abraded by this difficulty. And so they switch off. And the fact that they do is really bad because it means that the people who are dragging their feet who just want another five years of profits or will close our coal mines down in a decade or something, actually putting things more and more and more seriously at risk. That is the great good that these activists do is in alerting and informing people. Now here you and I now know about SUVs polluting the planet. That's right. And that is something that they brought to our attention, which I think is so needed now. That kind of activism across the board actually is is the way to go here for this reason national uh, governments in the developed countries which are the countries doing most of the polluting in the world the political cycle is very short termist because politicians want to be re-elected so all their policies are directed at the current state of the economy and as a result we see not only the election um, you know drive but also the fact that party donors and big multinational corporations who have their agenda uh, are are always focused on bottom line considerations, short-term considerations. So political parties offer us a manifesto, you know, we'll do this, that and the other, we'll cut taxes or we'll be green or whatever they might be, as if we were sort of rather passive, we've been brought the menu in the restaurant and we have to pick something. Rather than we, the people in the restaurant, telling the chefs what we want to eat, which Mm. is the way around it should be. So the, the way things are geared up at the moment is very unpromising from the point of view of getting all national governments at any rate to not stop worrying about their competitive advantage or disadvantage relative to other economies and to work together with those other economies. And instead, what we need to do is we need to mobilize citizen democracy, you know, grassroots democracy. Now, this sounds all very pie in the sky and very, you know, Byron Bay, <laughs> yes. but, but actually it is the only hope. Citizens' assemblies operating on the basis of deliberative democracy, which is a very good way of overcoming the usual problem with people, is that there's always somebody who talks longest and loudest than anybody else who wants to be the boss. And wherever there are 10 people, there are 20 opinions and, you know, all that problem. But they can be overcome by the purpose of use of the techniques of deliberative democracy in citizens' assemblies. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The other thing that I just wanted you to perhaps explain to people is how we often get so overwhelmed by how the hell we're going to solve a problem, but quite often it's just a little step to the left of our traditional thinking. Could you talk us through that anecdote about somebody who was wanting to open up a school for young girls in Africa? That person was me, actually. <laughs> and it was, it was a very, very what valuable... Was you? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. It was a very valuable lesson I had because I, I was doing some work at the Human Rights Council in Geneva for the, uh, at the UN for one of the uh, NGOs. And at that moment, uh, this very significant report was published about the effect of elementary education on the lives of girls and women in Africa. And what was uh, really crucial about it was that if uh, the, these um, girls and women could read and write, then they were able to manage their lives, property, their own money, that kind of thing, which gave them a great margin of, of uh, liberation from the traditional role of being the property of fathers and husbands. And also that the children of women with elementary education, well, firstly, they tended to have fewer children, and also those children would have a higher educational attainment than themselves. So it was all win, win, win all the way down. So I got very enthusiastic about the idea of uh, starting a school for girls. And I was told by Ian Hersey Ali, in fact, mm, that it would no be less. a very bad idea <laughs> to uh, just do it for girls. It should be co-educational uh, because the boys and men would you know, really give them a hard time. She said the key thing for ensuring that girls get an education is that the school Within must- Within a co-ed environment, co yeah, which is required so you don't have backlash. Exactly. Yeah. So the really key thing is that there has to be a, a, a loo, a lavatory with a door. And this is because when girls reach puberty, if they can't look after their personal hygiene, they just can't go to school. And they're, they're excluded from that process. And that would never have occurred to me in a million, million years. You it's know. understandable, Anthony. I mean, you're not a woman. You no, probably... exactly. <laughs> well, that's why. That's why. But, but there you go. You know, this is a, a sort of solution, which is really off in the corner of your eye. And you, you're looking at thinking about books and a blackboard and a teacher and, you know, exams and so on. And really, it's a loo. You know, a that, that's door. the yeah, toilet mm. door. Something that we actually talked about at the Writers' Festival, we spoke about the revival of Stoicism. You have a bit of a spiel about that, but we both noted it's become very popular among a subset of the tech community. You know, there's this sort of bro, tech bros, who are all into Stoicism. And it's a, a very masculine thing. And I, I find it really interesting. I'd love to get your thoughts on it and why it is that it's so popular at the moment among this community. The general reason for the revival of interest in the ethical schools of antiquity, and uh, you're dead right, Stoicism is the one which is, you know, uh, ahead of the list at the moment, is because in the last, well, could be three quarters of a century, certainly since the end of the Second World War anyway, the influence of, uh, of religion or religious traditions on thinking about matters of morality has tremendously diminished. Now, of course, apropos of things we were saying earlier in this conversation, people tend not to think about things very much, so they don't think about the basis of morality. They just have a knee-jerk reflex thing about, oh, well, the Ten Commandments or love thy neighbor and so on. So, you know, the residuum of, of say, Christianity or Judaism, whatever. But that has become much less persuasive, and indeed people are not even very much exposed to it any longer. They go to church, well, uh, you know, very small percentages of people do, so it's kind of vanished. And the very, very latest thinking about 
ethics in a secular modality is the writings of the ancient philosophers. Because, you know, ever since then, there's been another way of doing it, the religious way of doing it. And for that reason, the Epicureans, the Peripatetics, but particularly the Stoics, have come back into view. So you get a lot of popularized versions of these views. And, you know, people read Marcus Aurelius, and they uh, have these little pastel-covered books which tell you how to be a Stoic and mm-hmm. 10 rules for life or 12 rules for life, whatever it might be. My own take on, on that is that this is not great because it's so shallow. So it's like eating cardboard instead of proper dinner. You know, it, it really is very thin stuff. Uh, and it's all slogans. It gives you the illusion that you're getting, you know, getting some kind of control over your your uh, moral life by applying these rules. Again, it's a shortcut, isn't it? And it's another way of us avoiding the discomfort of the wrestle, the moral wrestle, that if you really want to be engaged in this kind of thinking, you must go through. And that is the point of it, isn't it? Is to wrestle with these ideas. You know, you're referring to Jordan Peterson, I suspect, in this 12 Rules for Life. And of course, he's the pinup boy for this kind of thinking, these kind of guidelines where you don't have to think, I'm going to tell you. It's a guru, right? Why is it that men in particular a flocking, well, Jordan Peterson, I mean, he is the guru, he's the messiah to so many young men. Why are they flocking to this kind of bubblegum, pre-masticated kind of diet version of philosophy? Well, look, it's a, it's a general fact about uh, human beings that they want somebody to provide an answer because they don't, as you you know, very eloquently pointed out earlier on, don't want to do the, the heavy lifting of, of thinking their own way through this. So they're looking for something which sounds uh, plausible. And if, it, if it's dressed in, in a way that's particularly appetizing. So if it comes at them as a sort of masculine solution to the problems of living. And in a way, you know, the fact that young men, are, um, mainly young men, are flocking to it is a sort of sad reflection on the fact that young men themselves don't feel that they uh, should be exploring their feelings. Or equipped. And, yeah, or equipped to do it, or, you know, have the, the uh, that they shouldn't because they shouldn't be sensitive or they should have a stiff upper lip or whatever it might be. And so having good, tough-sounding answers makes it easy. So they're not thinking for themselves. The whole guru thing is so antithetical to the very idea of philosophy because philosophy is about thinking for yourself and being critical and evaluating what people say to you or the the, uh, arguments that they give you, the ideas they present. Uh, And if you don't do that, if you don't, you know, accept that challenge, you're always going to be a football in somebody else's football match. You're not going to be kicking your, your own direction. You know, that's the real problem with this. The great Socratic challenge was to think for yourself. Uh, to, to accept that problem that, that uh, um, trying to work things out for yourself poses, which is that when you start, you don't know how to do it, and then you're kind of confused, and the more you do think about it, the more confused you get, and you think that's bad because you're going down a slippery slope. But as my, my memories right. are, it's the right thing to be doing. Yeah. That's right. And we're not told that, are we? We're not told that wrestling, that getting it wrong, being confused – sitting in that doubt and uncertainty is exactly where you're meant to be when you're wrestling with morality and philosophy. It's the whole point of it, isn't it? It is absolutely the whole point of it. And a really, really significant feature of this is everybody 
has got a philosophy of life. The vast majority of people don't know they have because they acquired it unconsciously from their parents, society, schools, um, church, wherever it came from, and they live according to it. And if there is a, a widespread sense of discomfort, like you've got the wrong size shoe on, it's because you're living in the wrong size philosophy of life for you because you've just unconsciously taken it. And what's so interesting about it is that there's a wonderful remark by Oscar Wilde where he says, most people are other people. Most people borrow their emotions and responses and senses from the way other people behave because we want to conform. We all want to be the same. We don't want to be out, you know, outliers. And so we all huddle up in like the penguins in the Antarctic. You know, we're all huddling together uh, and keeping as close to the conventions as we possibly can so we can fit in and be safe. And then we do Jean-Paul Sartre's The Waiter performance, don't we? That's we put right. on the apron and yeah. uh, behave a certain way to pull off that performance of the waiter, the philosopher, the guru the person who's got their 12 rules for life sorted. Indeed. Mm. And then and then we pick up on the Sartre point, what will happen inevitably if you're trying to play that role is it's going to be inauthentic because it isn't you. And you, you've adopted, you know, you could generalize the point and say you've adopted a role that you think you ought to be playing or that society values and you want to try and fit into it. And if you don't or can't or it doesn't quite work out, then of course the result is a certain sort of angst, a certain sort of level of uh, uh, discomfort. Dissonance. Yeah, dissonance. dissonance Absolutely. Which is, of course, I think at the root of so much anxiety I see today in the world where people are not living out their own philosophy. I um, often get asked, look, how do I start to, I guess, move into this realm of working out what's meaningful to me and developing my own philosophy? And I always say, just read the works of others who've gone through the same battle. And it's not quite the same as donning their affectations and their philosophies, but it's you start to see how familiar and how often it is that the big minds went through deep wrestle to get to where they are. Who would you recommend for people to go and read as some sort of basic texts? It might not necessarily be a philosopher. It might be a great thinker who's led a great life and there's a really good biography about them out there. Are there some well, starting points yeah. for people? I've come to think, you know, that, that instead of uh, recommending to people uh, books by great philosophers or by people who've written about this particular topic directly, that people consider, think about what they've already read. You know, if you read Jane Austen or, or George Eliot or Tolstoy or, or whatever, and to approach it, because it really matters how you approach it. Approach it not from the point of view of thinking you are going to be told or something or learn something, but approach it from the point of curiosity. What do they think and, and why, why do they think that? I'll give you one very good example. So at the beginning of, of uh, you know, Tolstoy says, every happy family is the same and every unhappy family is uh, is different. Well, Actually, every happy family is happy because they have found their own particular set of compromises and way of doing things and working things out. And unhappy families, there's a very small and tawdry little repertoire of infidelity, lack of money, uh, brutality or whatever, which is the re reason why they're, they're unhappy. So Tolstoy is, is 90 degrees wrong. And the thing to do is you read something like that. Now, Tolstoy is a very perceptive uh, individual. I remember being struck when I first read Anna Karenina there's a point in the novel where Levin's wife, Kitty, has given birth after a long labor. And Levin has been running up and downstairs and pulling his hair out, listening to all the screams coming from the bedroom. And he's in absolutely in a terrible state. Finally, the baby's born, little boy, they call him Dimitri. And he's allowed in to see Kitty, who's all covered in sweat and everything, give her a kiss. And then the, the nurses bring him 
his little baby son and puts this little baby into his arms. Now, there are all sorts of ways you could describe a father's reaction on his firstborn son being putting into his arms. But Tolstoy gets the absolute truth. Yes. Because he describes Levin's heart sinking into his boots and him thinking to himself, oh, God, what have I done? Now I've got another bloody responsibility. You know, It is so true to life, that. It's uh, ugly but, and yeah, true, it's isn't ugly it? it's ugly and true. Then you see that if you're an attentive and thoughtful reader, you would pause at that point and you would think, oh, that's so interesting. Well, I wouldn't react like that because when my son was born, I was over the moon, you know. Or but why did he react like that? And then to explore it and to begin to see, to see differences. Walter Pater says something wonderful. He says, it's only the dullness of the eye that makes any two things seem alike. If you try to see with, with discrimination and, and depth, and, and but to be interested in what other people see, why did Tolstoy think that? Obviously, he didn't particularly like having children then. And why was that, I wonder? Well, what about his life? Well, let's find out about Tolstoy's life. And so you, you pursue all these trails, biographies and people's ideas and the way they portray the world and experience begins to provide you with an incredibly rich equipment that you can help uh, help yourself to to think about what you think. It then and becomes then, the thread to your moral fibre. Exactly. I pick up from what you've said something quite joyful that I just want to emphasise for people because I think people would love to engage in this idea of developing their own philosophy for meaning because really I think that's what we're here to do and then to share that with others and then delight in each other's philosophies because that's what I find delightful about being a human being, right? You know, I mean, I'm just enjoying this conversation, just hearing about what you're thinking and going, hmm, do I feel the same? And how is everybody listening, thinking about this? It's delightful. It's what brings me joy. And I think the little missing bit there, and I, I think I'm thinking through the lens of people listening, is that we haven't been given permission to actually find our own journey to our own philosophy delightful, to find it faulty, to find it weird and awkward at times, but to actually go, here I am, this kind of weird clump of cells on the planet with my own take on things and to find that special, you know, to find your own way of doing things special. It's frightening. But once you actually get the knack of it, it feels special. It feels unique. It feels like this is why I'm here. You know, very often happens that people do do this. They do start to think about their uh, approach to life and what they value because of some traumatic event. You know, the death of somebody they care about or they have an accident or they lose a job or, or whatever. And then, of course, uh, the temptation is to grab for the, the life raft and go for the nearest thing rather than saying, okay, this is an opportunity to reset. This is an opportunity to, to lift up yeah, off the old rails and yeah, get into a new, get into a new direction. Yeah, mm. yeah. And so, um, if you manage to get through to somebody who's living life okay, you know, the th things are more or less going away, and say to them, why do you want to be doing that thing? What, why is that the thing that values you? Why do you think it's important? Like most people do, you know, to try and make progress in their careers or earn more money or buy a bigger house or you know, send mm. their children to expensive school, whatever it might be. And then if, if they take the opportunity in at leisure, at some leisure, with that space and time we were talking about, to get themselves to explore that, take a journey around themselves and then find out where they end up. As I say, they might, they might end up where they started and be perfectly happy with it again, but at least it would have been thought through and it would be their choice. But in many, many cases, there might be some kind of life-enhancing difference that becomes apparent to them.
But if you could get people to do the thinking before the disasters or the grief, thinking can make you rich, you see, because the true wealth is realizing that you have enough, whatever it is, if it is enough. And you don't have to live it out. No. You can actually think it through because we've got the capacity. This is the great thing about being human. We have imagination. And also, you know, you, you pointed out that a lot of the wisdom there is in the world. So when, when you asked uh, who might one read, so to read people like Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus and these people, or Aristotle, for example, but not to just pick out the one-liners that are now From Ryan so Holiday and yeah. so on. Yeah, but to challenge them and say, well, why do you think that, uh, Mr. Epictetus or Mr. Marcus Aurelius? When you do dig into this, you find out something which is very surprising. Those meditations of Marcus Aurelius, now people think that he was a wise man who had come up with these observations and insights, and he was communicating themselves that those insights to himself, because of course it was a private notebook. He didn't intend it to be published. The um, scholarly work by the French philosopher Pierre Hadot has shown that they weren't the original ideas of Marcus Aurelius. They were the ideas of his stoic teacher, which he was reminding himself of in order to practice and rehearse them and to memorize them. And this is really, really interesting point because it's, it's, he says it, what, what seems like an absolutely terrible thing. He says at some point, what is sex, you know, sexual activity, other than the rubbing together of two pieces of gut to produce a bit of slime? You know, it's a poor really man. horrible thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so that's how your, your reaction is, oh, poor man. But maybe he wrote that because, in fact, he was really, you know, quite preapic and enjoyed it, and he was trying to pour a bit of cold water on himself. You know, this is all it is, really. You know, why do I value it so much? You mm. can see it that way He's around. Okay? It. That, that's a very good example of how, look, you know, which direction you look at something from will give you a very different interpretation on it. And the process of thinking about these things. So you read Marcus Aurelius. Did he really believe that? Or was he trying to persuade himself? And if so, why? And do I agree with that or not? Mm. You know, not just to download it in, into your own The lesson head. is, they're not rules for life because they were explorations in the first place. Exactly. But really, the best way to explore them now is as a pivot point for your own exploration. Look, the other thing we discussed the other night, actually, I think I asked you if you've ever been seriously challenged or got depressed from thinking. And you referred to a moment in 1969. I think you said that it was a, a Berkeley's thesis on immaterialism, which just for for people listening, it's this idea of denying the existence of material substance and instead, you know, this contention that familiar objects like tables and chairs are ideas merely perceived by the mind and as a result cannot exist without being perceived. Now, you had a big existential crisis, if I can use that word, back in 1969 where you were trying to grapple with it. You were curious. You were applying yourself to it and doing the wrestle with it all. Many years later, you wrote a book that kind of resolved it in many ways. But I found it so interesting. And it seems like it is something that you're still exploring. And it comes down to the concept of consciousness, the hard problem. Wonderfully, we also mentioned the fact that I trained under David Chalmers, who's obviously an expert in this kind of realm now. This points to what you're interested in at the moment. I think what you're exploring in your next book. Can you just give a bit of an insight into why this has remained as a a hard problem for you over the years, and you're still wrestling with it. I feel, of course, that, uh, that the wrestling has been, to some extent, productive, because after uh, really finding it a fascinating and, um, early on, rather challenging uh, consideration, do we know, do we really have an op a chance of finding out what the nature of reality is? So the, the skeptical problem is that 
there are so many psychological contingencies, perceptual relativities, and so on, which get in the way of our ever being able to give a complete justification for anything, for any claim that we make uh, about the world, or indeed about ourselves. And then in science, um, science treats itself as being intrinsically defeasible. That is that it's never 100% right, but it must always be open to refutation by further evidence and so on. So this, this seems to take from under our feet, any sense of, of the reality of things. And have there been an the, absolute kind of yeah, tangible yeah. element to reality? A, a real kind of rock solid bottom line. And that all there is, is consciousness and its productions. This idealist view that uh, everything is the projection of or constituted by the contents of the mind. So it's all relative. Subjective. Relative to, to subjectivity, to experience. Yes. And so, so th this is a very intriguing problem for anybody who gets their, you know, hands dirty in metaphysics and epistemology, or those long words like marmalade and corrugated iron in philosophy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, but, but, but it is a very crucial uh, problem. But very early on, having been galvanized into thinking about it by momentarily, I mean, it was a long moment, it was some months of really being quite uh, disturbed by the thought that perhaps Berkeley was right that the world is immaterial. And then I realized that, that what I'd misunderstood about the argument and uh, what kind of a reply one could give to it. Over the decades, so it's taken me an entire lifetime working this problem out, to get to the point of understanding why it is we have this problem. Okay. And I can give you the bottom line of it. It's not my next book. My next book is this philosophy and life book about, you know, the ethical thing. But it's the book after that. Okay, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I always, I always do write two books at once because it's very refreshing to do it. But this, so, so then the one after is an analysis of the fact that whatever state of science we have, whatever state of scientific theory we have. And at the moment, of course, it's quantum theory and with the potential perhaps of, of string theory beyond it. But familiarly, you know, the quantum ideas of superposition, entanglement, wave-particle duality, collapse of the wave function, a cat is both alive and dead at the same, you know, all those mm -hmm. sort of things that two people know about. Two plus two equals five. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That to try to get your head around all those things, you know, there's got to be some way of making sense of it, we think. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to interpret those very fundamental concepts in quantum theory in the terms of the classical Newtonian world that we actually occupy. My argument is that in principle, it's not possible to do that. And it's not because of, of the quantum theory. And quantum theory may just be a stage on the way to some even better scientific theory about fundamental you know, uh, nature of reality. But no, no, even some perfected and finalized science is ever going to be translatable into our ordinary experience of space-time causality. Because our ordinary experience of space-time causality is just an artifact. It's just made up because we are creatures of a certain size and scale in the universe. We organize uh, our experience into tables and chairs and trees and people and ice creams because it's convenient to us. If you were to look at any object in the room we're sitting in, there are a lot of different ways of thinking about it. You could just think of it as clouds and clouds of atomic particles or as one thing, the furniture in the room. I mean, there are lots of different ways of organizing it. And the way we organize our perceptual experience works by using such concepts of space-time and causality in very, very contradictory and different ways. We have a number of different concepts of time. We think of causality in, in uh, different ways. So, for example, we think everything material is causally interactive, but we don't think of ourselves as causally interactive because we have free will, okay? 
we're just a mass of contradictions and dissonances. Yes. Yep. But they're useful because they make this world for us. Mm. And it's only and when we start doing philosophy about it, and we think, what do I mean by time? And famously, Saint Augustine said, "If you ask me to meet you at the pub next tomorrow at five o'clock, it's fine. If you ask me what is time." I've got no idea. And then when you analyze the idea of time, you find out that we've got lots of contradictory concepts. Past, present, and future. Different and later. cultures have different concepts of time as well, and, and not just the language of it, in terms of how they fathom it and communicate it and think about it. It's all made up. It's, it's all a, you know, a, a construct, and, and therefore, therefore it is the source of philosophical perplexity, and it's never going to be resolved, even if we did have a perfected science which told us what it thinks the nature of reality is. The answer is, and this takes us back to an earlier part of the conversation, yes. we have to live with the open-endedness, uncertainty, and kind of open texture of our lives and our experience. That is a wonderful note to end this conversation on because I think it does leave my exploration on this podcast open to going into some of the stuff you've touched on because you're really going into this area of metamodernism, this idea of taking all the theories that existed before and saying some are useful. We don't have to get rid of them, but you know there is no one answer. It really is the space I think a lot of thinking is moving in, into, and I know that you're aware of this this way of thinking. I'm loving how it's the philosophy, the ethics, the science, and so on. They're all kind of coming together and leading this direction at quite a rapid pace, I think. I can't wait for your next book and the book after that, and I'm sure you're already thinking about your third book. AC Grayling, thank you so much for joining me. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. A lot of what Anthony talks about just now is what I refer to in my book as soul nerding. And for the life of me, while I was talking to him, I couldn't even remember the term nor where it came from, but I looked it up afterwards. It came from an evolutionary psychologist called Jeremy Sherman. And uh, Jeremy says that soul nerding is about studying our predicament with considered curiosity by absorbing evolutionary biology, intellectual history, philosophy, anthropology, and above all, literature. And I think in my book, I refer to poetry and a bunch of other things that also I put under the category of soul nerding. And uh, of course, Voltaire called it cultivating our garden. Antony calls it developing our own philosophy. I can actually attest to Antony's commitment to this sort of soul nerding process and encouraging it in others. We found ourselves chatting, you know, in those various situations on buses and while sitting together at the Gold Coast airport waiting for a late flight, eating sunflower seeds together. And every topic that came up, he'd ask my take on it, whether it was Scott Morrison's slipperiness, the character development in Call My Agent, that French uh, TV series, we're both big fans, and why I think intelligent women so often remain single. Anyway, check out his work and a bit of a shout out to my local bookshop, Gertrude and Alice in Bondi, but also the book room in Byron, both of which Anthony also supports because you'll find signed copies of a number of his books there. Tell them I told you to go and visit. Until next time, you know, stay wild. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.